Our text for this morning is Psalm 28. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the main petition of this psalm is found in verse 3. Do not take me away with the wicked, David says. That petition is very similar to the petition found in Psalm 26, verse 9. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. However, in Psalm 26, David is primarily concerned with vindication. Vindicate me, O Lord, he says, for I have walked in my integrity I have also trusted in the Lord, I shall not slip. But here in Psalm 28, David is concerned only with this one thing, that is, that the Lord not take him away with the wicked. And so we're going to consider the psalm under the theme, Do not take me away with the wicked. Do not take me away with the wicked. First of all, We're going to consider verses 1 to 5, and that is making the request. And then in verses 6 to 9, responding to the answer. Making the request and responding to the answer. David begins this psalm, people of God, in verses 1 and 2 in a way that is very common to him, that is, in requesting that the Lord answer, hear and answer the petitions he is about to make. But there are some unique features about this request as it is made here in Psalm 28 to which we have to call our attention. First, David says, To you I will cry, O Lord my rock. That is, he does not make a request first to be heard, But as he presents himself in the presence of the Lord to make his petitions known, he says to the Lord there in his presence, To you I will cry, O Lord my rock. I will not ask anything of anyone else. I will not take my petitions to another. I bring my petitions to you, O Lord my rock, because you are the one who is able to help me. In the second place, he makes that very striking petition in the second line of verse 1. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. The silence of the Lord, people of God, is a terrible thing to the people of God. It is a terrible thing to them because it is by the word of the Lord that they know him. It is through that word that he reveals himself to them. It's through that word that he calls them to himself and save to himself and saves them. It's through that word that he shows them how they ought to live. It's through that word that he answers their petitions. When the Lord, therefore, is silent to his people, his people are greatly troubled by that silence. That silence is worse, people of God, than his anger. 
When he speaks words of anger to us, as he did sometimes to Israel, especially in the prophets, and when he speaks words of anger to us for our sins, then that, those are bad times for us, of course. But we know when he is thus speaking that he is chastening us and that he is calling us to repentance. When we do not hear his voice, when he does not speak, then we don't know how he is dealing with us. He may be testing us, but he may also be so angry with us that he has lost interest in us and that he will no longer speak to us. Remember what the apostle says in Hebrews 12 about bastard sons whom the Lord does not chasten. And remember also what the prophet Amos says in the 8th chapter of his prophecy, speaking one of the worst judgments of God upon his people. Verse 11 and following, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a famine nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. They shall fall and never rise again. When the Lord is silent to us, people of God, then indeed we become like those who go down to the pit. We need to hear the voice of the Lord, for the voice of the Lord, whether it is a a voice speaking reassuring words of comfort and promise, or whether it is a word of anger calling us to repentance for our sins, the voice of the Lord is the power of God unto salvation. But when he is silent then we lack the means of grace. We indeed go down to the pit. The pit is a synonym for the grave. But it's not the grave viewed here in this psalm as it is viewed in Psalm 16 as a place for our flesh to rest in hope. The pit is rather viewed in this psalm as the end of life, as the place of the dissolution of the body, and as the gateway to everlasting destruction. If the Lord is silent, David says, I will indeed go down to the pit. But David is also, people of God, asking by those words, for a specific answer to the petition that he makes here in this psalm. He is asking that the Lord listen to this prayer and that the Lord speak to him in response to this particular prayer. How does he expect to receive that answer? by the Lord's speech. That's an important truth to recognize here. When we need comfort, people of God, we do not ask for comfort and then sit back and wait for comfort and peace to steal magically and mysteriously over us. 
But having asked for comfort, we turn to the word of the Lord, where the Lord speaks to us about his character, about his works for his people in the past, and about his promises to those who seek him. We seek the comfort of, that we need from the word of God. When we need guidance, we do not listen for inner voices or look for providential signs, but we go to the word to see how the Lord would have us live in the specific circumstances which are troubling us. We know that the voice of the Lord is to be heard in his word. And David here asks that God not be silent to him so that he may receive from the Lord an answer to the petitions he is making. That petition, do not take me away with the wicked. It doesn't mean when I say that we do not look for providential signs that providence is meaningless to us. It is not. When we pray with regard especially to the external circumstances of our lives, then we watch for the answer to those prayers in God's providential acts. When we pray for our daily bread, we don't then forget about that prayer, and when our daily bread comes to us, forget that we have asked for it, and pretend that it does not come from the hand of God, we know that in his providence he is answering our petitions. He is not only speaking to us, but also showing us through his providence the answer he gives. When we ask for healing, we look to see if he will heal us. We know he may not because he makes no such promise, but we look in his providential acts for how he is going to respond to our prayers. So providence is not meaningless, but we understand even the providence of God through the lens of his word. We need to hear the voice of God, and so our cry is very urgent. Do not be silent to me, lest, if you be silent, I become like those who go down to the pit. The third thing that we have to note here in these first two verses is that David, in asking God to hear, specifically now, in verse 2, hear the voice of my supplications, says, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. It seems to have been customary for the people of God in the Old Testament when they prayed to turn to that physical location where God's house stood. Not only does David say that he turns towards the holy sanctuary here, but we read also in Daniel, for example, that he prayed towards the city of Jerusalem three times a day. The people of God knew that there was God's throne. There was the revelation of God to them. There was the presence of God among them. From that place, God spoke to them. And so when they called upon him, they turned towards his holy sanctuary, physically towards his holy sanctuary, directing themselves to the presence of the Lord. 
That presence of the Lord is no longer here on earth and there is no specific place for us to turn to him here on earth. We lift our hands to the heavenly sanctuary where our Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us and where he sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us. That brings us then to the main request. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity. David is concerned here in this psalm that he will be caught up in the judgments that the Lord brings on the wicked. That when the Lord comes against the wicked in judgment, David himself will be swept away with them or that he himself will be plucked up with them and cast into the fire. His concern is the same as Abraham's concern for Lot when the Lord told Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's concern was, will the Lord destroy the righteous with the wicked? And David here, feeling the judgments of God, asks, will the Lord take me away with the wicked? Now there are a number of ways in which we can see that that petition might be a matter of urgency to David. First of all, David is aware of his sins, of course. He's very much aware of the fact that as far as he himself is concerned, There is no real difference between himself and the wicked. There is no real reason why the Lord should not take him away with the wicked. In fact, we can drive this point home, people of God, by looking at how David describes the wicked in the end of verse 4. Who speak peace to their neighbors but evil is in their hearts. There's probably no better way to illustrate what that means than to turn to 2 Samuel 11, where we read about how David dealt with Uriah the Hittite after he had betrayed Uriah in committing adultery with his wife. 2 Samuel 11, verses 6 and following, David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. So David's mouth was full of friendship. He called Uriah to him. He asked him about the progress of the war and about the well-being of the soldiers. He sent him down to spend the night with his wife. He sent a gift of food after him. And when his conspiracy against Uriah that night failed, the next night he called Uriah back again and he plied Uriah with drink And when he was thoroughly drunk, he sent him again to his home, hoping, of course, that he would spend the night 
with his wife. And when his conspiracy failed again, he sent Uriah back to Joab, carrying a letter to Joab in which David told Joab how to kill Uriah. He spoke peace to his neighbor, but evil was in his heart. People of God, in the light of that, what David did to Uriah, how can David even make this petition? Do not take me away with the wicked. He knows his sins. We don't know really whether this psalm was written in connection with the circumstances that we've just looked at in 2 Samuel 11. It may have been. But David knew his sins. David knew, people of God, that he was as worthy of judgment as those wicked men against whom he was praying here in this psalm. How then can he say, do not take me away with the wicked? And do you see also that with the knowledge of his sins upon him, this petition becomes very urgent? He understands that there is no essential difference between himself and the wicked as far as he by himself is concerned. And so he cries to the Lord, do not take me away with the wicked as I deserve. David also knows the chastening hand of the Lord. In all of his life, in fact, after he had committed that sin with Uriah, The Lord came to him by the prophet Nathan and told him that he would experience the chastening of the Lord for the rest of his life. Not only did he lose his son, born to him of Bathsheba, but there was trouble in his household and in his family for the rest of his life because of that sin. The trouble with Absalom was to be explained by that sin. The trouble with Adonijah was to be explained by that sin. The trouble with Tamar and Adonijah was to be explained by that sin. The Lord's chastening hand was on David because of David's sin. And those chastenings, people of God, feel like judgments. They are judgments. And when those judgments of the Lord come on us for our sins, then the question that arises in our hearts is, is the Lord making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked? Is there really a difference in his dealings with me and with the wicked? I feel his hand against me in the same way that the wicked feel his hand. What does that mean? And especially that question becomes very pressing when God is silent and does not explain why he is coming with such judgments. Is the Lord hating me? Has he cast me off? Are his promises forgotten? Where is he? And finally, people of God, David Praise that way because the righteous also, along with the wicked, get caught up in providential acts 
of judgment against the world. When the Lord sends famine and hurricanes and war and trouble in the family and all kinds of other disorders and troubles here in this world, it's not just the wicked who suffer in those things. Those judgments of the Lord also come upon his own people. And feeling that those judgments of the Lord and knowing them as his chastening hand, the people of God cry to him, Do not, do not take me away with the wicked. In verses 4 and 5, David prays against the wicked specifically. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Now the question that comes to mind and the question that comes to the mind of everyone who reads these words of David is, how does this fit with love for our enemies? How can we make this jive with the Lord's command that we must love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us? In his commentary on this psalm, Calvin says some very important things, I think, about that question. There have been those, of course, who have basically rejected these prayers of the Psalms. C.S. Lewis calls them sub-Christian. Even Charles Spurgeon in his Treasury of David says about this specific petition that we really ought not to translate the Hebrew here as a petition but simply as a statement of fact. The Lord will give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their hands. The Lord will give them according to the work of their hands. He will render to them what they deserve. But whatever may be the specific meaning of these words, people of God, we're going to come across this question again and again as we go through the Psalms. The Psalms have many of these kinds of petitions in them. Petitions against the wicked. How do those conform to the Lord's command? Which was not just for the people of God in the New Testament, but also for the people of God in the Old Testament. Love your neighbors, and more specifically, love your enemies. Calvin says, first, that such prayers may not be a seeking of personal vengeance. That is, it may not be because of what we personally have suffered at the hands of an enemy that we make such a petition to the Lord. We may not pray for God's judgment on our enemies. And if you look at this psalm, you will find that David does not here in this psalm speak of the wicked as his enemies, nor does he complain in any way about what the wicked have done to him. He is more concerned with what they have done to their neighbors than to him. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. So there cannot be a seeking of personal vengeance in this manner. 
In the second place, Calvin points out that these petitions may not go too far. That is, that they may not be wholly unrestrained. Jesus, he points out, rebuked James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and gave them the name Sons of Thunder when they wanted to call down fire from heaven on the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had gone too far. But notice here that in these petitions that David makes against his enemies, he does not go beyond asking for justice. In fact, that, we might say, is the theme of his prayer against them. Four times he says it, according to their deeds, according to the wickedness of their endeavors, according to the work of their hands, render to them what they deserve. He never goes beyond asking what God, that God be just in his dealings with his enemies. He never goes beyond, in fact, asking what God has said he will do to the wicked. But even those points don't really answer the main question, do they? How can we make such a petition jive with the Lord's command to love our enemies? The final thing that Calvin says in his commentary is that such petitions must arise out of love for God. Out of love for the honor of God, out of love for his law, out of love for his people. The law has two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Those commandments are not equal. The first of those commandments is love the Lord your God with heart and mind and soul. That is, it is a holy, unqualified, unconditional love. You cannot love God too much. But the second command is not thus unqualified and unconditional. That command is love your neighbors, even your enemies, as yourself. You may not love your enemies and your neighbors with heart and mind and soul as you love God. And in fact, and here's, I think, where the answer really lies. In fact, sometimes love for God conflicts with love for the enemy. And in those circumstances, we may pray and even must pray against the enemies of God. That's what David does here. Look at the next verse of the psalm, verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands, he will destroy them and not build them up. What is David concerned about? He's not concerned about himself. He's not concerned about what these wicked men are doing to him. He's concerned about the honor of the Lord. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. What does he mean by that? Well, he means, people of God, that these are people who will not acknowledge the work of the Lord in his world. They will not acknowledge his work of salvation. 
They reject that law which he has had spoken in his world. They deny that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. They deny that the things that happen here in this world are the work of his hands. They say when good things happen that they come by their own skill or they come by good fortune or good luck. They say when bad things happen that mother nature is not so kind. They say that misfortune and bad luck have happened to them. They say all kinds of things except that this is the work of the Lord. They deny the work of His hands. And of those people, David says, the Lord will destroy them and not build them up. And against those people who will not honor the Lord, who reject the Lord wholly, who may confess Him with their mouths, but in all that they say about events in this world, have nothing to say about the Lord. He says about them, he prays about them, Give them according to their deeds. He drives this point home, actually, people of God, by using the same words in verse 5 as he uses in verse 4. And the translation doesn't get to this point because it's a little bit different. But in verse 4, he says, Give them according to the work of their hands. And in verse 5, he uses that same phrase in the second line the operation or the work of his hands. Because they do not regard the work of his hands, give them according to the work of their hands. See the correspondence there. They deny the work of the Lord's hands. Let the judgment of the Lord come upon them then according to the work of their hands. But how do we take this into the New Testament times? Well, I think there are certain circumstances where it's not easy, not difficult, people of God, for us to say there's an occasion where it's appropriate to pray against an enemy. Take the example, for example, example of someone who comes among the people of God preaching false doctrine, leading the people astray, speaking to them not for their salvation, not for their benefit, but simply to line his own pockets. There are such men among those who call themselves Christians today. What is our first concern in such things? Is our first concern, people of God, that God save those men? Or is our first concern that God take them away from among his people? that he silence them, that he save his people from them. I think it's the latter, and it ought to be the latter. Perhaps we would ask for their salvation after the Lord has silenced them, but the first thing is that the Lord save his people from them. Another circumstance might well be this whole matter of the murder of the unborn people of God. Do we pray for those who are committing murder? 
Or do we pray first that God will stop them in whatever way is necessary to stop them? And many other acts of wickedness, open defiance against the Lord, open hatred of God's people. Is it not our responsibility first to pray for the salvation of God's people, whatever that may mean for the enemies of God and of his people? Is it not first our responsibility to pray for the honor of God and the glory of God, whatever that may mean for his enemies? So we pray, not without restraint, not without putting limits on our prayers, but nevertheless we pray for the justice of God upon the wicked. The question, however, in regard to this psalm is, why is this even found here? Why does David make that petition here? You could take verses 4 and 5 out of the psalm, and the psalm would still make perfect sense. You could go from verse 3 to verse 6, and the psalm would make perfect sense. So why is it here? And that brings us to our second point. Responding to God's answer. Now we should notice here that David does not speak does not tell us specifically how God answered his petitions. We know that God answered him because he says, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. And again, he uses the very same words there in verse 6 that he had used in verse 2. In verse 2, he said, Hear the voice of my supplications. In verse 6, he says, He has heard the voice of of my supplications. The Lord has answered him. So we know that he has received the answer. But we do not know how the Lord answered him. David goes from petition to praise in a moment. Goes from petition for himself and against the wicked to praise for the Lord. Blessed be the Lord in verse 6 in a moment. So what are we to say about this? Well, there are a number of things that we can point out here, people of God. And that is, first of all, we can go back to that question we asked about verse 3. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity. How is it possible for David, in the light of his own sins, to make that prayer? How is it possible in the light of what he did to Uriah the Hittite to say, do not take me away with the wicked? The answer to that question, people of God, is that he had received through the prophet Nathan the word of forgiveness. The Lord had not been silent to him. The Lord had come to him by the prophet Nathan speaking his word to David. And it was a word of powerful rebuke to David for what he had done. But when David heard and understood that word of the Lord, he confessed his sin. And when he had confessed his sin, Nathan the prophet said to him, the Lord also has taken away your sin. 
That's how he can pray. Do not take me away with the wicked. The Lord has forgiven his sin. But we can go further than that, too, in our understanding of this. Notice that verses 4 and 5 of the psalm can be taken also with verses 6 to 9, just as much as they can be taken with verses 1 to 3. How is that? Well, in verses 4 and 5, David first makes a request against the wicked. Give them according to their deeds. And then in verse 5, he says, tells us how the Lord deals with the wicked. He will destroy them and not build them up. Now when you go down to verses 8 and 9, you find that David does the same thing in reverse with regard to God's people. He first tells us in verse 8, how the Lord deals with his people, and then he makes petition for his people. So you have in verse 4, a petition against the wicked. In verse 9, a petition for the people of the Lord. Then in verse 5, a statement about how the Lord deals with the wicked. And in verse 8, a statement about how the Lord deals with the righteous. So you have a kind of chiasm here. But it's not a chiasm in which David says the same thing or basically the same thing in both sides of it. He says opposite things. And then between those opposite things, he brings his praise and blessing to the Lord for the Lord's answer to him. Blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. So what is it here that David is doing? Well, in verses 4 and 5, he is dissociating himself from the wicked. He is saying, I not only do not want to be taken away with them, but I want no part of them. And it's clear that I want no part of them because I pray against them and I recognize what the Lord is doing to them. Let my part be with the people of the Lord. He prays for them and recognizes what the Lord does for them. And in the context then of this antithetical thinking, David recognizes that there is no neutral ground for him, that there is no place for him over here with the wicked, but that his place is over here with the righteous. Not because of any righteousness in himself, but because the Lord has forgiven his trespasses. And so he makes this request against the wicked people of God in recognition of the grace of God to himself. In recognition of the fact that the Lord has separated him from among them, has drawn him out from that company and made him different, not because of any merit or worth in David, 
but merely of grace. And that's why you have that very sudden transition, too, between those verses. He prays against the wicked, and then he blesses the Lord. Why does he bless the Lord? Because he understands that the Lord does not deal with him as he deals with the wicked. That the Lord has made a difference in spite of what David did to Uriah and in spite of all David's sins. The Lord has made a difference. Blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and shield. My heart trusted in him. I turned to him in my prayers. I cried to him, do not be silent to me. I asked him, do not take me away with the wicked. And he heard. And he answered. And he became my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him. And I am helped. Therefore, too, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. It's not for anything that he has done, not for any self-worth that he feels that he can pray against the wicked. It is because of the Lord's grace to himself. And therefore, his heart rejoices, and with his song, this song, he praises the Lord. And having known the grace of the Lord in that way, people of God, his desires extend also to the Lord's people, that they too may know that grace. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Notice how he ties himself and the people of God together there. He is the anointed one. The anointed is singular here, not plural. He is the anointed one. The Lord is their strength, that is, he's the strength of his people. And he is the saving refuge of his anointed one. David recognizes his special position in relation to the people of God. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament, the typical Christ, in whom and on whom the salvation of the people of God rests. When the Lord hears the prayers of David, the Lord is blessing his people as well as David. Just as when the Lord hears the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ, do not take me away with the wicked, he blesses his people in Christ. And so David prays that the people of God may also be blessed by God. Four things in the last verse of the psalm. Save your people, bless your inheritance, shepherd them also, and bear them up forever. The words save must be taken in the broadest possible sense here, people of God. Must be taken to mean salvation from trouble, salvation from sin, salvation from death, salvation from enemies. The whole scope of God's salvation, 
Salvation of soul and salvation of body. Save your people. So also with regard to the word bless. That word bless has to be taken too in the broadest possible sense. That is what David means here is as you take away from them all the evils of this present life. Do not leave them empty, but fill them with your good things. Bless your inheritance. Notice that word inheritance too. That's very important here. The scriptures look at this whole idea of inheritance from two different perspectives. On the one hand, they say that the Lord is our inheritance. For example, in Psalm 16, David confesses, the Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is the portion of my cup. But here it's turned on its head. Here he says that the people of the Lord are his inheritance. That's what he receives as the result of the work of his hands. And he rejoices in it as we rejoice in receiving him for our inheritance. Bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also, he says. That word shepherd carries with it the connotations both of vigilance and of tenderness. The Lord is very watchful for the care of his people He is also very tender in caring for them, supplying every need according to his abundant goodness. And finally, he says, bear them up forever. That is, I think, probably, as some commentators have said, carry your sheep in your arms forever. Lift them up and carry them in your compassion for them. So we have David here making a very striking request for himself. Do not take me away with the wicked, which probably people of God in the first place strikes us as somewhat irrelevant to ourselves. I hope that we no longer feel that way. But we have him also, people of God, praying in this context of his own trouble for the people of God, not forgetting that he is a part of the body of Christ and desiring blessing not just for himself, but for the whole of God's flock. Seeking good for himself, yes, but also for the rest of God's people. Desiring out of the joy and gratitude of his heart, that they may know the same things that he has known. Having heard the word of God, let us say, Amen.